I'd like you to take the Word of God with me this evening and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We'll begin reading with the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain He covered His face, and with twain He covered His feet, and with twain He did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. We'll end our reading there this evening at verse 8. Let's ask the Lord for His help. Father, we are conscious that we come in prayer to the very same God that caused Isaiah to be completely tongue-tied and bow in awful reverence. And Father, we know that if we have anything of a glimpse of Thy holiness... We will say, woe is me. Father, we we know that if we see thee in the fullness of thy holiness, we would all fall at thy feet as dead men. But Lord, we would plead with you tonight to open up thy word. Show us the Lord in his glory. For thy son's sake, help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. King Uzziah started off well. He was actually, it was actually said of him that he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. But unfortunately, although he started off well, he did not end well. The Bible records for us in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that one day King Uzziah being lifted up with pride because he had done so well. He took it upon himself to go into the temple and actually burn incense on the altar. Now, this might seem like 
something strange to you and I, but for them, that was a desecration of the house of God and of the worship of God. That was the priest's job. No man, be he king or whatever else, was given the liberty to offer incense on the altar. And by doing this, Isaiah was desecrating the house of God, was showing his incredible pride. And so the Lord struck him with leprosy. And he ended up dying. And this is the scene that the prophet Isaiah was living in when this sixth chapter is before us. In the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that the good king died. In the year that the king suddenly had leprosy given to him by God and died under the judgment of God. I saw also the Lord. You can imagine how the people were totally staggered by the king's death. I mean, here's the king, and all of a sudden, he's dead. And Isaiah, no doubt, began to seek the Lord. And as he sought the Lord, he saw a vision of God. And it's often in times of our own trials that we see a vision of God, is it not? as we are compelled to seek Him, because we feel our great need of Him. And so Isaiah sought the Lord, and he saw a vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, seated on the throne, with angelic beings surrounding Him, crying out one word over and over again, and it was the word, Holy. Holy, Holy, Holy. Holy is the unique lyric of the heavenly beings around the throne of the thrice holy God. They could have said, love, love, love. They could have said, glory, glory, glory. But they said, holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the most emphasized attribute of God in the Word of God. Holiness is associated with everything that God is associated with. The Bible is the Holy Bible. His apostles are the Holy Apostles. His prophets are the Holy Prophets. His temple is the Holy Temple. His throne in heaven is the Holy Throne. Everything He touches, everything He's associated with, is holy. And this note, if the attributes of God were a symphony, the note of holiness soars above the music again and again and again throughout the Word of God. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy in everything. Holiness colors everything He is. His love is a holy love. His justice is a holy justice. His wrath is a holy wrath. All His works are holy. Everything about God is holy. God is called the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. The Bible tells us that He swears by His holiness. 2 Chronicles 20 verse 21 actually calls God's holiness God's beauty. The beauty of God. Stephen Charnock said, Power is His hand and arm. Omniscience, His eye. Mercy, His bowels. Eternity, His duration. His holiness is 
His beauty. As brightness is to the sun, so holiness is to God. All that God is glows with His holiness. He is shining. He is dazzling in His holiness. He is fundamentally and absolutely holy. And this is what the angelic beings were saying around the throne of God. Holy! 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 Well, what exactly is holiness? Holiness has two meanings. One primary meaning and one secondary meaning. The primary meaning of holiness is transcendent majesty. The secondary meaning is moral excellence. Transcendent majesty. What we mean by transcendent is God's exalted nature. He is above His creation. He is lifted up above human beings. We are simply pedestrian in comparison to Him. Transcendent speaks of God's otherness. God is absolutely, fundamentally unlike anything He has created. He is God. One preacher said, Is God more like a glorious angelic being or some bacteria? that is somewhere in the scum of the earth? And the answer is, God is not more like any of them. God is completely other. God is God. He is transcendent. He is entirely different. The Creator and the creation are separated by an infinite chasm. And the word holy, actually, the word itself conveys the idea of separateness. Some see it coming from the idea of cutting, to cut, to separate. And so, saying God is holy means that He's totally separate, He's totally other, He's transcendent. And He's transcendent in His majesty. He is majestic in His kingly glory. His aboveness and His otherness is a majestic aboveness and a majestic otherness. He is supremely separate. As far as His moral excellence is concerned, God is perfect. He's perfect in His being. He's perfect in everything He desires. He's perfect in everything He does. He is totally holy in absolutely every aspect of His being and everything He does. God is morally excellent and perfect. And as we come to this vision that Isaiah has of God, we see both of these in full display. And so, look with me at the vision Isaiah had. In the first place, as we look at Isaiah 6, we see the vision. The vision. He sees a majestic king. The primary object of the vision of Isaiah is not the temple. It's not the seraphim. It is the Lord. And he is sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He sees the Lord sitting as a great king on his throne, in his kingly, regal majesty. He is seated there as the sovereign of the universe on a throne. Yes, The throne is abdicated. Uzziah has died. But there is one on the throne, and it is the Lord. 
He raises up kings and He deposes kings. The Lord is on the throne. And often in Scripture, the holiness of God is associated with a revelation of God in His kingly majesty. In Revelation chapter 4, the Lord again is revealed as sitting on a throne with four heavenly beasts crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. Because in this vision of God, in His kingly majesty, we see Him in His transcendent otherness, His supreme glory, sitting on the throne. He is high and lifted up, the Scripture says. He is higher than anyone. He is more lifted up. He is more exalted. He is loftier than any being, than anybody, than any of His creation. He is high. He is lifted up. And then the Scripture says that He has a train. It was customary for Eastern kings to have trains flowing from their robes that would, that would flow perhaps as this vision shows us down past His throne and however far it would go would bespeak the dignity of that king, the eminency of that king. So the longer His train, the greater perhaps His dominion, the longer His train, the more exalted the king would be. And the Bible says that His train filled the temple. Every square inch of the temple was completely filled by the train of the Lord of Lords. There was no room for any rival king. There was no room for any idol. There was no room for any other sovereign. The entirety of the floor of the temple was covered with the train of this king, showing that this king is the greatest king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. His dominion is everlasting. His reign never ends. He is the great sovereign of the universe. His train fills the entirety of the temple. And as was customary for Eastern kings as well, they would be attended by princes and nobles who would be flanking them at their beck and command, serving them, doing whatever they asked. And the Lord doesn't have men serving Him. He has glorious heavenly beings surrounding Him. Beings that if we saw them, we would fall on our faces because they're so full of glory. And yet they are the attending servants to this Lord, showing His absolute majesty. You can imagine what it would be like if you had the opportunity to visit, say, the Queen of England. And she might be sitting on a throne. She would have a crown. I don't know if you've ever seen her throne. It's beautiful. It's gold. She might be attended by many, many servants. She would have guards standing there in their regalia. And everything would bespeak of her majesty. And as you would come in, you would bow and you would say, Your majesty. Your majesty. But nothing can compare with the vision we have of this king. And as we look at this king in his kingly, regal majesty, he is dazzling. He is awe-inspiring. So that when we see Him on the throne of His glory with His train filling the temple and the seraphim around Him, we would say, Your Majesty! Your Majesty! An incomparable Majesty! 
It would be said, all hail the King of glory. This is true kingly majesty. And then the seraphs are singing, holy, holy, holy. The Bible tells us that these seraphs, if you look at the way the word is used, has to do with the idea of burning. Seraph is the verb form from what it means to burn. And these beings burned. They burned. They burned before God. They burned with zeal. They burned with intense devotion. They burned in worship. They burned in love. Because the closer we get to the throne, the closer we get to God, the more we burn. And the closer they get to the throne of God, the closer they get to the infinite majesty, the closer they come to the holiest of holies, the more intense their burning, the more intense their ardor, their zeal, their passion, their love, as they come closer and closer to this King of glory. They burn. They are the seraph. They are the burning ones. And the closer you and I come to God, the more we will burn the more we will be in flame with holy love, the more we will, be, we will be in flame with holy passion and zeal for this great king. And as they came before this king with twain, they covered their faces. They covered their faces in reverence. These beings, as I said earlier, were so glorious in themselves. And yet as they're before this Lord, They're covering their faces in reverence. You would think that if these seraphs, seraphim, had been in the presence of God for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, that at some point they might get used to the glory. At some point the glory might not be as glorious as it once was. At some point they might be able to feel comfortable in the presence of the king. But they don't feel comfortable in the presence of the king. They shield their faces because they can't even look on the king of glory even though they've been in the presence of the king for 10,000 years perhaps. They cannot look on the face of this king although they are heavenly beings created to be in the presence of God, covering their faces with reverence, with awe before the King of glory. And then the Bible says that they covered their feet with twain. They covered their feet. And you could translate that with the idea of they're covering their bodies, not merely their feet, but their lower bodies. They're covering their bodies. Covering their bodies as Adam and Eve did in their sin to try to cover up their shame. You see, the heavens are not clean in the sight of God. They recognize in comparison with the King of glory, in comparison with the holy. They have to cover their bodies in shame in the presence of this glorious King. And then the Bible says, they did fly. They did fly. They flew in service to the king. They flew in obedience to the king. They flew with zeal to do the bidding of the king. You see, when the people of God burn with zeal because they're in the presence of God, they will fly to do the will of God. They will fly to do the bidding of God. They will fly to obey Him. They'll fly. 
Fly to take the gospel to every nation. Fly to the place of prayer. Fly to the word of God. They will fly because they burn with holy passion and devotion for this king. You see, this is no boring place of worship. This is a place of intense devotion. Because God is the object of worship. God is the object of praise. And they sing. And really, as it says here, one cried unto another could be translated in this cried unto this. They were responsively crying out. One seraph says, holy. The other says, holy. And then the other responds, holy. And then all in one great chorus is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy. One theologian said that even though this is, yes, expresses the emphasizing of His holiness, the superlative nature of His holiness, the continual emphasizing of it, holy, 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 meant that He was the holiest. That one theologian said that there is actually a progression. Holy. Then holy means the second time, holier. Holier than the creation. Holier than men. Holier than anything you've made. And then the third time, holiest. You are the holiest. There is none holier than you. There is none like unto you. Fearful and praises, doing wonders, glorious and holiest. There's no one like you. Holy, holy. Holy. You see, when God is seen in His holiness in the object, as the object of worship in the church of Christ, there will be glorious, overflowing, intense worship. There are no lights here in this scene, there's no stage. There's no band. There's no eloquent preacher. There is just God. There's nothing but God. And God is enough. God is enough to transfix the seraphim for eternity. God is enough. You want to know why the people of God, we lack burning passion and devotion for Him? It's because we do not see Him in His holiness. We do not see Him for who He is in His transcendent majesty. We don't grasp His glory, His kingly majesty. And so we have to, as the church often does, try to have a cheap imitation of the dazzle of the King. We'll try to dazzle you with real lights and dazzle you with songs and dazzle you with everything we can. But the real dazzle is the King of glory. And if the King of glory is present, there will be true burning worship. And you won't need anything but the King of glory. You won't need anything but a sight of God and His holiness. Why is it that in times of revival, they would simply sing the Psalms and be broken in tears? And burn with zeal because they saw the Lord. They saw God. They didn't need all of the extravaganza that we have in churches today. And then the seraphim say, The whole earth is full 
of His glory. One man said, glory is the revelation of His holiness. When you see God rightly, you'll see the world differently. You will see a world full of the glory of God, not a world full of the mess of man. You'll see a glorious display of His wisdom and providence and ordering all things as they are to bring glory to His name. You will say the earth is full of your glory. You will see the stars in a new way. You see the sky in a new way. You will see the trees in a new light. You will see the birds of the air in a new way. You will see it all as an expression of the majesty and the glory of the King. The whole earth is full of your glory. Not merely here in this place, Isaiah's seeing the seraphim say. Not merely in the temple. The whole world is full of your glory. The whole world. But we don't see it. And the lost don't see anything of His glory. See anything of His glory. But He is seen in the earth and in the works of His hands as being the God of glory. And then the posts of the door move at the voice of Him that cried. Such was the demonstration of His holiness and His power. An earthquake happens and then the house is filled with smoke. The smoke that is speaking the glory that filled the temple at the dedication of Solomon's temple when the cloud filled the place and the priest could not even minister because of the glory of God that was in the temple. And then we see the effects of the vision. In verse 5, Then said I, Woe is me. If you look at chapter 5, Isaiah is saying woe to everybody under the sun. Verse 11, woe unto them that rise up early in the morning. Verse 18, woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Verse 20, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. 21, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. Isaiah looks at the people of God in these days and he says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you in all your sin. Woe unto sinners. But when Isaiah saw the king, He said, woe is me. Woe is me. And you may be able to say, woe. Woe are those people out there. But have you said, woe is me. Woe is me. I am condemned. I am am done. I am unraveling. For I am undone, he said. He saw himself as ruined. I'm disintegrated. I'm unraveling. I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm undone. I'm undone before this king of glory. I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm full of sin. I am wretched. Woe. Woe is me. Woe is me. And then he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And you would think, but Isaiah, the best thing about you, Isaiah, is your lips. Because you preach the word, you're a prophet, you preach the message. And Isaiah says, my lips are unclean. My lips are unclean. The part of my anatomy that is most used for good, even to preach, is unclean. Woe is me. And here we see not only His transcendent majesty, but His moral excellence. 
Isaiah recognized that he, as he stood in the presence of this holy king that he was utterly undone because this God was morally perfect, excellent, pure. And he knew that this king on his throne would exercise his sovereignty to put down sin because he is holy. A holy God loves that which is good and hates that which is evil. And Isaiah knew God who is on the throne. If I am left in my, in my, my naked self, I will be damned. I will be condemned by God. Psalm 7 verse 11. God is angry with the wicked every day. Habakkuk 1 verse 13. Thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. You want to know why people have a high opinion of themselves? It is because they have a low view of God. And if you are in the service and you have never felt, woe is me. Whether you're a Christian or lost, if you're not saved, you have never felt, woe is me. It's because you've never seen the king. You've never seen the king. You may have come to church. You may have heard preaching. You may have sung. You may have read the Bible. You may have gone through all that you want to go through, but you've never seen the king. You've never seen him. Because if you see him, you will say, woe is me. You cannot rightly see yourself until you rightly see him. It's not possible. If you read Calvin's Institutes, that's the very first thing he sets up. You need to know God and know yourself. You cannot know yourself rightly unless you know God. God is so holy that when Peter stood in the presence of Jesus, he said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. When John on the Isle of Patmos, who leaned on the breast of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, when he saw him, the Bible says he fell at his feet as a dead man. He went completely unconscious in the presence of Jesus in his exalted glory. He went unconscious. Do you know that if God right now came into our midst, if Jesus came into our midst and he showed us something of his holiness, we would all go unconscious. We are not able to sustain a vision of God and His holiness. We are not able to view Him. That's why we need glorified bodies one day. So that we can see Him and not go unconscious in glory. If He would step into this meeting right now and show us something of His holiness, all of us would cry, Woe is me. The hardest heart would cry, woe is me. The hardest heart would be bowed in the sight of the king who is holy. Christians, so, have you seen God in his holiness? Have we been humbled with the sight of God? Are we like the Laodicean church? Hey, we are rich. We have need of nothing. Have we said, woe is me? Woe is me. Not woe is them. Not woe are all the people doing wrong or woe are all the other churches. Woe is me. Woe is me. But then we go, come to the cleansing. 
He says in verse 6, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. The altar that Isaiah was speaking about was that which was in the court of the priests in front of the temple. This was the place of sacrifice. And one of these heavenly beings takes a coal from off of the altar. A coal that was perhaps used to roast the sacrifice. And he touches Isaiah's mouth. And just a brief touch, as the original language would convey, just a brief touch is all it took. And his iniquity was gone. His sin was purged. What's going on in this vision here? What's going on is this. The altar represents the place of atonement. The place of sacrifice. The place where an animal had its blood shed and was offered up to God. The coal represents the pardon, the forgiveness that comes on the basis of that sacrifice. Touching the lips of the prophet. Forgiveness comes from The sacrifice, the grounds of forgiveness is what we say propitiation, appeasement. God's wrath is appeased. Godward, His wrath is appeased. The law has has been fulfilled in the death of the substitute. And then in the manward aspect of atonement, now on the basis of propitiation, He can forgive sin. And this laying of the coal on the mouth of Isaiah was giving the prophet the assurance, Isaiah, although you see me in my holiness... Your sin's gone. Your iniquity's gone because of the sacrifice. But you see, we know who that sacrifice was. It's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In fact, this whole passage is about Jesus. In John 12, verse 41, Jesus said, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory. And spake of him. Do you want to know who it was sitting on the throne? It was Christ. God revealed himself in the person of his son in the Messiah. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the one whose train fills the temple. Jesus is the one who the seraphs cry, Holy, holy, holy. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. Jesus is the very God of heaven. Jesus. But Jesus is also the sacrifice. The true lamb. The way that the seraphim speak is they say, Your iniquity is taken away. And this phrase, taken away, means that sin is gone. It's the same English phrase in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This sacrifice takes away sin. It takes it away. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He separated our iniquities from us. Like when the priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat, confessing sin symbolically laying the sin and the guilt of the people on that goat, and the goat would go off into the wilderness, taking sin away. Your sin is taken away. It's gone. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. Your sin is taken away. The next phrase he says is, it's been purged. Purged. The Hebrew word for cover 
It's translated atonement 73 times in the Old Testament. Our sin has been covered. Covered. So where has our sin been taken away to? It's been taken away and placed on Jesus. What covers our sin? It's the blood of Jesus. And you know the amazing thing is in the Old Testament, when the blood was sprinkled on the altar and the vessels and things associated with the altar, the Bible says that they were sanctified, which means they were made holy. They were sanctified. And this is exactly what the blood of Jesus does. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. See, every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, one sacrifice for sin forever, it doesn't need to be done again. It's a perfect sacrifice. It doesn't need to be repeated. It's completely perfect. It is finished. It's done. It is all that is necessary. One sacrifice for sins forever. He sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down. He sat down because the work was done. He sat down because now he's the exalted king of glory. He sat down. And brothers and sisters, Isaiah 6 shows us Jesus sitting down on a throne. He is sitting down. He is the Christ who has fulfilled all that is necessary to save his people. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified sanctified. And if you look at verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Isaiah is looking at God and His holiness. He says, woe is me. The seraphim see God in His holiness. They cover their faces. They dare not approach too close. But the book of Hebrews tells us we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Because the blood has made us holy. Now we're holy because our sin's gone and we're righteous in the sight of God. We've been sprinkled with the blood and we've been made holy in the sight of God and we can now approach the throne of God and plead with Him and commune with Him and we can one day be brought into the very presence of the living Christ and we can view Him in His holiness and we will not be destroyed, we will not be condemned, we will not be disintegrated in His presence. We'll be enabled to see Him in the fullness of His kingly majesty and rejoice with joy unspeakable because the blood of the Lamb has made us holy. And that takes us to the cross. And there is no place where God's holiness is more displayed. The penultimate display of the holiness of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus died because God is holy. You see, Christ's death was a vindication of the holiness of God. Showing that God could not let sin go unpunished in this world. It's a vindication of His own holiness. But you see on the cross, as far as His moral excellence is concerned, that the Father is so holy 
He would not spare His own Son. He would not spare His own Son to uphold His holy law. He would crush His Son. He would place the curse of the covenant on His Son. How holy is the Father. The Son is so holy that He would not run away from the death of the cross. He would go to the cross. He would suffer. He would die because He knew that sin must be punished. That God must be holy. And the Spirit is so holy. The Bible says that Christ was offered up through the eternal Spirit. He upheld the Son in His sufferings. The Holy Spirit is so holy that He upheld the Son as He was crushed by His Father's wrath. You see in the cross God's hatred for sin in the alienation of Christ. You see God's hatred for sin in His shame, God's disdain of sin. The cross bluntly shows us the ugliness of sin and the holiness of God. All the blood of beasts that were slain would bring up this terrible odor when they were all slain in the Old Testament. And that odor was reminiscent of this filth of sin, the revulsion that God feels when He looks at sin, the odor that would cause us to to want to gag, causes God revulsion. And He looked at His Son, the Father looked at His Son as a man. And He saw Him as a mass of concentrated sin. And He was revolted. And now He looks at me and you. And He says, you're the apple of mine eye. But you also see Him in His transcendent majesty. On the cross, the cross is His throne. His train is His blood that fills the ground beneath it. His crown thorns, His attendants a mocking crowd. His praise is the jeers of the Jews. And there you see more than anywhere else His kingly majesty, His total otherness, His supreme separateness. Is there anyone like Jesus? Is there anything in creation like Him? He's dazzling there on the cross in His grace. He's blinding in His mercy. He's awe-inspiring in His love. The King of love upon the cross in kingly majesty like no one could ever dream, ever imagine, or ever consider outside of the revelation of God. We have to cry out with Exodus 15, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, who is like thee, glorious in holiness. That's why the hymn writer wrote, Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike, and divine, but the fair glories of thy grace are more godlike and unrivaled shine. In wonder lost, with trembling joy, We take the pardon of our God, pardon for crimes of deepest dye, a pardon bought with Jesus' blood. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace? So rich, so free. This is our holy God. And then finally, in Isaiah 6, we see the commission 
the Lord asked the question, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And the answer comes back, Here am I. Send me. Now Isaiah is burning. Now Isaiah is flying. Because he has seen the king. He saw him in his holiness. He was absolutely dismantled and shown to be a completely undone sinner. Then he was overwhelmed with the free grace of God. And now he's burning. And now he's flying. Here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. Here am I. Let me go, Lord. Let me do your bidding. Let me do your will. Let me live for you. Again, what will grip your soul? Young, old, doesn't matter where you are. What will make you sold out for Christ? What will emblazon your soul for God and give you a burning passion like you never had before? It's not going to be your effort trying to make yourself better. No. It's going to be you seeing the king. It's going to be when you see him for who he is. And that might mean you have to get alone with God and plead with him. God, show me your glory. Unveil your majesty. Let me have a sight of you in your holy, kingly majesty. Until your heart is broken until you are laid prostrate before Him and you cry, woe is me. And then you might have something, an inkling of an appreciation for grace. And then you will fly. You will fly. You will fly to serve Him. And that's what we need. And that's what the church of Jesus Christ needs. They need a lofty revelation of God. That's what we need all over this nation, but that is what we need here in our hearts. May God give us a vision of Himself in His holiness. Don't be content with standing afar off. Go to Him. Seek Him. Come to Him. Plead with Him. Beg Him. Show me Your holiness. I can't go on. I want to see You in Your glory. I want to taste Your grace more richly. I want to know more of You, Lord. Please show me Your glory. And no doubt, you will find yourself saying, Here am I. Send me. With a heart of flame to serve the Lord. He is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for what we've read. But Lord, reading it does not suffice. Open our eyes. 
to see thee for who thou art. Make us burn like seraphim to do thy bidding because our eyes have seen the king and we love him. Father, bless all of thy people for Jesus' sake. Amen.